The Money Show. Business Unusual. With Colin Cullis. Business Unusual this evening. Colin Cullis, product owner, is joining us this evening as we talk about just how the efficiency of container cargoes has started to become inefficient. Colin, thank you so much for the time this evening. Boy, oh boy, when we saw Ever Given get stuck in the uh, Suez Canal, it took us back to 2013 where it happened, but that was really for just a few hours. This was six days. Yes, and the possibility of it taking a lot longer was a very real worry. I mean, at one point with a ship having both its bow and the stern, the front and the back stuck on the sandbanks on either side of that canal, and it being as long as it is, fully laden. There was the chance that if the, uh, the the tides were coming in and going out, the wind was blowing, that ship would be flexing along its center. In fact, the reason it's sitting now being checked is to see that no structural harm has come to it, that it can continue the rest of the, the, the journey. But you can imagine if that ship had actually broken apart in the canal and the time it would have taken to remove you know, the huge volume of not just the oil that would be spilt out, uh, but all of those containers, 20,000 odd containers, would have made for a truly uh, a massive, massive challenge uh, for global shipping. We're talking about a uh, ship here. Start- yeah, we're talking about a ship here that is what, the size of the Eiffel Tower? That's huge. Yeah, it's hard to actually get your head around just how large the ship is because its length is about the height of the Eiffel Tower. Some people think it's that high. It's its, its length. Yeah. Four football fields, about 400 meters long. But in every dimension, it really does challenge, you know, how this whole thing works. And part of how I came about this, the shipping thing in the first place was uh, back in 2018, we were looking at the things that will disrupt transport and intermodal containers, the those boxes we know that are on top of container ships, was the big disruptor, uh, first postulated sort of in the 50s. But you can understand uh, shipbuilders didn't want to change the way that they built ships. Uh, Harbors didn't want to change the way that they accepted and dealt with with cargo. And unions very clearly could see that if you put everything in boxes, you don't need people to move a bunch of barrels and baskets and manually move things in and out of fridges. So they absolutely resisted uh, bringing these containers on board. And it took America's war in Vietnam where they had to really shift everything they needed from America to Vietnam to go and fight that war. Uh, that got them to see uh, putting things in these boxes made it a lot easier to load boxes, transport boxes, and offload boxes. And once that had started, once uh, people could see that it was going to become inevitable, things really did start picking up. And, and it, it went from being a, a great idea to be well in- implemented to where we are now, which is we're right at the edge of where the efficiency and the realities uh, start start blending. And just for comparison, those those ships in the in the in the uh, late fifties could handle about eight hundred TEU. TEU is the reference they use for those containers, which is a twenty uh, foot equivalent unit. And twenty foot, about uh, six meters these days. They're not even six meters anymore. They're twelve meters. That's the typical size of one of those things. So they went from eight hundred in the the late fifties up to uh, about 8,000, sorry, 4,500 in the 80s. And by uh, the 2000s, they were hitting 8,000. Now, when they, when they passed the 4,500 mark, those ships could no longer pass through the Panama Canal. The Panama Canal doesn't have just a long canal. It has actual locks that the ships have to go in, get raised, and then move on. So since the, the early 90s, there's a whole bunch of ships that simply could not use that route anymore. And obviously, uh, given how important the route it is, that was a challenge. Uh, Panama has subsequently looked to improve the size of those locks to handle the larger ships. That uh, refit was completed in 2016. But even by then, 
the ships had outgrown the size of those locks. And now it is so expensive and so much engineering goes into having to build a bigger lock that it's almost cheaper to say, we just won't handle those ships. Uh, the Suez Canal, uh, a brilliant piece of engineering, was the first massive sort of construction of a canal like that, uh, but it was built in the 1880s. Uh, and so you can imagine somebody in the 1880s are hardly imagining a ship the size of the Ever Given ever needing to move through, through the canal. Uh, it was only eight meters deep at the time it was built. The Ever Given right now is 16 meters below water. It is, it's completely nuts. So perhaps it'll be worthwhile just uh, talking about what actually happened to the Ever Given to illustrate not just that it was likely to happen, that it is inevitable it'll happen and probably will happen again. And that's to start with this little game, and I made a reference to it in the, in the tweet ahead of the show, that CNN mm. created to give you some sense of what it's like to control uh, these enormous uh, container ships. Uh, and the catch is they, they're so very long, and the engines, of course, the propellers are way, way at the back. There's some guidance things higher up, but effectively the propulsion comes from the back. So uh, if you can imagine pushing a trolley backwards, it feels very weird. The front end wants to straight, stay straight. The back allows you to move it left and right. But now when you're moving to... Uh, the canal and the part of the Suez Canal that it was stuck in is about 200 meters wide. The ship itself is about 60 meters wide, uh, which makes it very, very tight. But then, of course, the, the canal isn't equally deep for the whole canal. It's only 20 meters deep right in the middle, and then it gets shallower towards the edges. So it's not a full 200 meters width you've got. You've probably got another 15, 20 meters on either side that you can that you've got to come back from. Uh, to make sure that the ship can sit comfortably in the water. And even then, at, at 16 meters below the water level, i.e. five stories, the, the distance to the, to, the, to the ground in the canal is only about four meters. Uh, and if you imagine um, with tide movements, etc., you're not giving yourself a lot of space. So then the final uh, factor comes into it, the, the top part of the ship, which is effectively a 14-story building. And again, a 14-story building, 400 meters long, now uh, gets caught in a sandstorm with, with steady prevailing winds. Now it's got to keep this really difficult to steer ship on course in a very small uh, area. Uh, and to do so with, with low power, effectively the ship could basically get blown backwards. So it's got to try and get up a, a good bit of speed, i.e. it's got to build up a lot of momentum. So when what happened, uh, it overcorrected into the, into the wind and the, the front of the ship caught the right-hand bank Effective, that ship still had a lot of momentum momentum in it. Uh, the front had to stop; it hit the ground. So the back swung out and then basically lodged itself right across right across the canal. That's how it got into the spot that it was in. Now, what should have happened, could have happened, is that uh, the boats are usually or tend to have uh, tugboats that help assist them. But the catch is there is about fifty ships that go to the through the Suez Canal every day. Uh, which would mean if all of the boats had at least one tug and something the size of Ever Given needs two, that's a lot of tugboats that are required with crews. And the ships, you know, they run all day, every day. It takes about 20, 16 to 24 hours to get through. So you can imagine from Egypt's uh, logistics point of view, every boat has got to have a pilot. That pilot can't work, you know, every day. So you need to have more than the 50 pilots you need for the 50 ships, plus all the tugs and all the crew. And then the people alongside the canal looking after the logistics and checking that was is going right. So it is very expensive to get through the Suez Canal, but it is a fraction of the price when you consider how much more costly it is to travel around uh, Africa or, or use another route. So that's kind of the some sense as to just how well, likely it was that a very large ship like that did get stuck and will get stuck again. Although it wasn't the, uh, 
longest that people had to get stuck. Uh, back in 1967, in a war between Egypt and Israel, uh, the canal was was purposefully shut by uh, by the Egyptians. They they sunk boats and put uh, pushed uh, bridges in. Uh, leaving uh, 14 vessels that were on their way through at the time to have to wait into this great uh, bitter lake that's in the in the middle uh, of the canal. Uh, and it took eight years before the war was settled and then the canals could finally be opened up again before those ships could finish their, their trips. Most of them at that stage were no longer seaworthy, so they needed to be towed or basically were given up on. One German ship was still good enough. Uh, it continued its journey. It sailed to its final port. And so it holds a world record for the longest voyage between two ports uh, taking over eight years. But there's another reason that makes us have to say, um, well, why don't we just, you know, deepen the canal or widen the canal and, and have no problems there? And, and the catch is where those ships come from and where those ships go also have a problem. Most ports simply aren't deep enough or big enough to handle ships when they get to the size. And while the, uh, sh the ship makers, the ship con container makers, the owners, uh, would happily keep building larger ships, and they are intending to, as I say, the Ever Given is part of this golden class. There's about 11 of them that are, are that big, these um, um, 20,000 TEU capable ships. Uh, but there is already uh, plans for a 25,000 TEU ship uh, designed and ready for production with the potential for it getting maybe up to 30,000 before we start really topping out just with, you know, reality taking over and saying it's just not practical to put so many things on a ship. But for a harbor to be able to handle that, and not even just harbors, there's straits, uh, natural passes that the ships have to pass through that aren't deep enough or wide enough or have very severe weather that might make it uh, dangerous for them to do it, that would suggest that uh, we need to rethink this. And while you can imagine a lot of ports would you know, love to welcome massive ships bringing in huge amounts of freight. Uh, the truth is, if, if, if the demand for imports and exports in those cities uh, isn't there, then despite having built ports big enough to be able to handle those big ships, they simply won't come. So it looks like uh, for all of the advances we've done over the last while, it's probably about time that we, we, we pause a little bit and start looking at uh, tiering it. So you'll have these very, very large ships effectively work from only a few ports basically working as a big shuttle from one big port to another. And the catches we saw during this pandemic, when you rely a lot of freight coming from one place to another place, but not so much going back the other way, and there's a big interruption of a lockdown, you get stuck without a lot of goods. So there'd probably be a bit of a rebalancing about where and how the manufacturing is done, but still would also say you'll have smaller ships and smaller ports that would collect and transport containers to fewer but very large ports and then these very large ships would run just those routes between the very large ports maybe two or three or four locations around the globe and then everything else splits off from there mm. because again just to illustrate how much containers that is at 20,000 containers if it had to let's say come and arrive in Cape Town which it could just barely fit into and had to be offloaded and then stuck onto trucks the convoy of trucks from just that one ship would see a line of trucks 360 kilometers wrong, traipsing up out of the harbor Good and off to where grief. they need to go. That big, huh? It is crazy. It's Absolutely that big. crazy. But, but there is still a, a, a very good lesson that comes from all of this, because while we've, we've worked out a lot of our shipping and marine law, most of airline laws are based on the marine laws from all the time that we've spent sailing everywhere. There is another need that's going to be coming up pretty soon. As Elon Musk's and the rest of the guys start looking to move into space, we're going to have to start thinking about how we move cargo, more and more cargo, first to the moon and then to Mars. And similarly, we'll need to have things that are orbiting in space or 
constantly moving between the two, working out where we're going to collect uh, that cargo, how do we get it up into space. And so hopefully all of these uh, considerations about how shipping works uh, will have another role to play in how we work space, as well as dealing with uh, the, the stuff here on Earth and keeping big ships safe as they move all around the planet. Sure. So much that needs to be said, done and looked into when it comes to the container and cargo ships and the efficiency thereof. Colin Cullis, appreciate it this evening. Business unusual then as we get into the efficiencies of container cargo.